Alright, so now we are uh, back on track with our Spirit Lead uh, series, which is all about discernment. I thought Pastor Beck spoke brilliantly last week, and it can also be brought into this arena of discernment. And she talked about we're discerning what God is saying, but then there's also the reality of the world that we're living in, the reality of, of the relationships, um, uh, all the different things that we have to manage in our world. And sometimes that does impact our follow through with what we're discerning, what God is saying. But really, uh, going back on what we have discussed so far, discernment is not something you either have or you don't. Discernment is something that you grow uh, and train yourself in. You use your discernment on a daily basis and you're able to grow. If you fail to use your discernment, it can actually fall away. And so this is something that is hugely important for us. And the Bible actually links your use of discernment with your maturity. They are not separate things in God's eyes. How you discern is, the, uh, uh, is a link to your relationship with God. After 10 years of marriage, Beck and I are able to better discern what each other are saying, feeling, and going through because there is a greater maturity in our relationship. How do we do that? We talk every day. We have discussions. We have times that we have um, uh, fallouts because we have different points of view, but we keep trying to learn more about each other, and that has grown our discernment and has grown our maturity in our relationship. Which leads me to the other point that we have been making, that the training and growing of discernment is not done in isolation, but is done in community. Is something that we need one another to be able to grow in. And finally, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about how it requires humility because we need to submit ourselves to God and to one another. And it requires hunger because we need to keep pushing and learning and growing in our capacity to discern. Today, we're going to look at Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. I'm going to read this, and then we'll go from there. It says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. <laughs> I thought that was Star Wars. I was like, Luke Skywalker? Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." Does anyone um, looking and evaluating with hindsight the journey of your life, can you place a finger on times that you have changed as a person? Can you think about special moments of change in your life? I mean, the easy ones are things like, I was a teenager and I went from kid to adult, you know? Uh, I, I noticed some changes over the course of the last couple of decades moving past puberty, uh, and I have noticed a decline. Uh, changes happen in my body. My metabolism has dropped. 
Every bit of chocolate requires now, I don't know, 15 kilometers of running rather than like two minutes of walking. Um, you know, Beck has been very kindly pointing out that my hairline has receded to the point where I'm kind of deciding whether to keep it or not. There are all these changes that happen, but there's one point in, line, in time that uh, there was a very significant change in my life, and that was when I was 15. My family migrated from Singapore over to Perth, and really, interestingly, in hindsight, uh, it was a significant change, not just in the location and the culture uh, of, of, of country that I lived in and therefore the influences, but two significant things changed in my life. The first was this, that I was no longer as angry a child. My parents might contest that. <laughs> But I used to be this angry, uptight kid all the time in Singapore. But coming to Perth, I don't know if it's just because people walk slower. You know, in Singapore, there's a joke um, that when you come to WA, you learn how to wait a while. And so it was like, oh, my heart rate is no longer there. And maybe that helped to calm me down. But another significant change happened. And that is that in Singapore, I was quite shy and I was very quiet. But I came to Perth and I was... I was like, I was in a new school, and I was, I started high school at the term four of year 10. Most people had already made friends, and so I went into it knowing I needed to make friends, if not the next two years was going to be hell. And so I did that. I went to a school, a public school, and uh, I made lots of friends, um, and then uh, on and on and went. Now, how I know that I changed in particular is that after being in Perth for three years, I had to go back to Singapore for national service. And I went back to my old church that I was at for about five years before coming to Perth. And um, I joined teams, I, I, I made friends. And some of those who knew me before I left for Perth, they literally said to me, Nate, I never heard your voice before. <laughs> I had never really heard you speak before. It's like, you actually talk now. And I was like, yes, I am a different person. I have changed. But you know, when I speak to most people, most people are kind of like, change is difficult, right? Change is not something that we necessarily like. Change makes us uncomfortable, but to grow in discernment, change is absolutely necessary. And I was reading, uh, I guess, a bit of a philosopher, and he was saying that people change and they do things to make change because they love something enough and they hate something enough. And there's a tension there. We love something to the point of going, I will accept this and I will be constant with this, but we hate something enough because we notice that even though there is great love for something, there are things that still need to be changed. There is this uh, realism, if you will. There is this uh, ability, this perspective that there are things that aren't right about this. See, people that just love something without hating anything in it, they are deluded and they just go, everything is perfect. Or they just might be in a bit of a honeymoon phase. You know, people that just get married, it's like, oh, my partner's amazing. And it's like, yes, they are. But sometimes they can also be a cow. And you are failing to see that because you are newly married. And six months later, you'll probably say, yes, I see the cow in my partner. It's the reality of life. You love, but it's not because you don't love the person that you see things that need to change. 
It's because you love the person that you go, yes, there are things that need to be changed. And you hate the things that need to be changed because they need to be changed. And so when I was 15 and I moved over to Australia, something, I remember thinking this, I think I've not been a great friend. And so I'm going to change that. I'm going to be less angry and I'm going to be less quiet. I'm going to actually do something about it. And when I was talking to my psychologist a couple of months ago, we were just chatting about stuff, and I said, you know, one thing was quite strange that that happened. I said, well, that's not actually surprising, she said. And said, you changed environment, and that allowed you to evaluate and to make decisions about where you're going in the future. And at 15, that was still a time where you were still malleable. And I look at myself now, I'm, I'm, I'm late 30s, 37, and I realize now that changing now is not as easy. There are things that need to happen. However, I also realize that if I didn't change at the age of 15 when I noticed that there was something that I hated about the way that I was going, I would not stand here in front of you as your pastor. I would not have done all the things that I've done. I would not have been able to have the impact that, that God has allowed me to have because I would be a quiet, angry person probably hiding in a cave in my home. There's still a part of me that loves this being in a cave at home. But the truth is that God has placed something so much more in me and has captured me. And I have to decide I need to change because that vision is what I'm going towards. And that's what discernment does. It unlocks the ability, the perspective of where you really are and where you really are going. And so when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, the first thing that Paul writes to this church, by the way, just a bit of feedback, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesian church to once again remind them of the life that is available in God. The first three and a half, four chapters are all about what God has done to to unlock life for us, and then the last three chapters is about how we actually live in that life. All right, so that's the perspective of Ephesians, the, the big picture. And in verse 15 of chapter 5, the first words that uh, Paul that we read in Paul's letter is look carefully. Look carefully. You see, when God speaks to us about our lives, it doesn't mean that you immediately change. It doesn't mean that you automatically just come in alignment with all that God is saying and doing. Paul actually tells the church, look at the life that God has for you. And then he doesn't say, so just enjoy it. Just wake up and do whatever you feel. Just, just walk through any door that opens for you. Just do whatever makes you happy. No, he actually says, so God has done all these things for you. Look carefully then how you walk. God gives us the opportunity to choose where we are going. This is actually something that is really, really exciting because, you know, we talk about sometimes Christianity being restricting. Claire was talking about that just a moment ago, about that fear. Christianity actually gives us opportunities to choose differently from what the world is saying. It actually liberalizes us to able to see new perspectives and to learn new things compared to how we used to live. So we look carefully then how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom in the Bible isn't about uh, uh, this, this weird concept. Wisdom is about the ways of God. 
And so when we discern what God is saying, we're able to go, oh, God is actually telling me this. And then you're able to put that into your life. I think at 15, God was speaking to me already. I don't think I quite understood it, but I think he was preparing me for a life of public ministry. And, and he was going, Nate, this quietness is going to have to change. And I was like, I don't want to. I probably, he was probably talking to me probably at 10 years old. But it took me until 15 when I moved countries and had to slow down. I was like, hang on, this is not good enough for me anymore. And so we look carefully, we evaluate, we use hindsight. There are things that have happened that you can use as opportunities to, uh, to use your hindsight, to use your discernment about things in the past and go, hey, how could I have done that differently? That's not to condemn you or not to shame you or not to put guilt on you. It's to actually learn. You look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he goes on in verse 16, making the best use of the time because time is short. Ah, he didn't say that. You are also said, mmm. Read your Bible. It actually says this, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Not short. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, when I was reading this, that actually surprised me much like everyone else. When I slowed down and I looked at that passage, I was expecting because the days are short. Make the use of time because the days are short. And it makes sense because our culture tells us that there's an urgency that we need to get onto. When there is something wrong, it needs to be dealt with now. Get to the chopper. You know, we need to get... Oh, sorry, no one got that reference. Thank you. Thank you. It was like, you need to follow me now. If not, you are going to die. There's a Terminator coming to save everyone. Terminator is a Christian, by the way. He said, celebrate Easter. <laughs> no, he says, hustle the vista. But anyway, <laughs> old jokes, really old jokes. I'm sorry. It's been a stressful week, people. Um, but it actually doesn't talk about an urgency of time. It talks about an evilness of time. Paul tells us to look carefully how we walk, to use wisdom, and to make the most of every day because there are opportunities to be either wise or unwise every single day. And every single day, there are opportunities that the enemy is going to use to put evil in your walk. Every single day. So every single day, there are opportunities to grow in the things of God and in the life of God, and there are opportunities to walk away from the things of God. The days are evil. Your choices around your spiritual growth and your, your life isn't only just on Sunday, whether you come to church, whether you tithe, whether you served. It is every single day how you treat the people around you. How you bring God into your everyday life, those are things that we need to consider, not because the time is short, not because there's an urgency, and if you don't do it, God is going to strike you down, but because God is saying, I have shown you where life is, and so every day when you start to become aware of the evilness that is in this world, you can step away from it. 
Discernment is meant to be used every day, not because if you don't, God is going to strike you down, but it's because there is life to be had. We need to fall in love. We need to be gravitated towards the life that God has for us because when we love that enough, we will see that, hang on, there is stuff in here that I need to let go of. And guess what, people? The time isn't short, but the days are evil. And so you have time. You have time today, you have time tomorrow, you have time in a year's time to continue to make those choices. You've got time till you take your last breath to continue to choose the things of God. But the problem is that we need to start doing it now because there is so much life that God has for us. I don't want to get to, the, to my last breath and go, man, I missed out on so much that God had for me. That I was so selfish, I was so cautious, I was so caught up in other things that the things that God was actually speaking into my life, I just completely missed it. One of the great giants of our faith, Tim Keller, just passed away two days ago. He was an amazing theologian, but the way that he spoke about his last days, he said that if death is the end of everything, then of course it's something to be feared because it means no more love. But because God has called us to a greater love, I can face death excited because there's even greater love. He caught a hold of the life that God has given to us. And so he wasn't afraid of what he was doing. He made the most of every single day he had. He was writing. He was podcasting. He was doing all sorts of things to build uh, the, the bride of Christ because he saw the wonderful love and life of Christ. I hope that I get to that stage of my life where I know that I have not wasted my time. And so what has God been saying to you about? Maybe there are some dreams. Maybe there are some uh, uh, inklings that God has placed in you. That, Hang on, I've been called for more than this. So how are you going to make use of today? Not because the days are short, but because the days are evil. There are things that are going to distract. There are things that are going to take you away from what God wants to do in your life. So Paul goes on in verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There we go, there's foolishness here. In the Bible, foolishness is not about being um, intellectually challenged. Foolishness is about wanting to do life without God. In Psalms, we read time and time again, the foolish man has said in his heart, there is no God. It is about a moral bankruptcy because they're thinking that I am the center of the universe. Therefore, do not be foolish. It's not about you. You are not the center of the universe. Life is actually so much richer when it's not about you. The things that get my heart, the things that actually energize me are not about how comfortable I am. I've been reading a book about how cities came into being. Cities have only existed about 6,000 years. And this archaeologist said this. He said, every city is the same. But yet we would spend thousands of dollars to go to another city to experience life. He <laughs> said, there are roads, there are markets, there are places to eat. Yes. And I was like, it's kind of true. Why do we... I mean, there are lots of other things in place, but it just kind of brought to mind, it's like, why do we think that life is better somewhere else? Anyway, 
the will of God is made available to us so that we can have this life. Now, this is actually what I want to focus on. Verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, quick poll. Who has used the word debauchery over the last 10 years <laughs> in your life? Are you serious? Is it in a legal context? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we got one person who used the word debauchery. Now, the word debauchery, I had... Honestly, I had to search it up because I, I, I'm kind of like, what is the actual meaning? I kind of know it, but debauchery is kind of a weird word. Debauchery actually means an excessive indulgence in wine, sex, or drugs. It just means this excessive indulging type of behavior. But when I was looking at this particular verse, the word that is translated into debauchery, the Greek word is the word asotia. I'm probably not saying it right. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Oh, sorry, Greek scholar. It is um, the letter A and then so T. I think, Anthony, I might have a slide for that. Uh, so, now, so that, there we go. It's A, so T. Now, with Greek, one of the things that the Greek language does is that when they put the letter A in front of a word, it means the absence of that. So, for example, in our English language, we all know the word apathy. Apathy is a pathos which means the absence of feeling. When you feel apathetic, you're feeling the lack, the absence of emotions, the lack of feelings, right? So that means that debauchery is the absence of something, which made me a little bit interested. What is it the absence of? So sotia um, has the root word sozo, which means to save, and is the word soteria, which if you can study um, Christian studies, Soteria means salvation. A sotia is about the absence of salvation. It's not so much about, and I thought that was really interesting because debauchery is focusing on the excess, is focusing on the indulgence, but the Greek word is talking about the absence of life. God has come to save us. But we're living in a way that is void of the life that God has for us. And so sometimes, what we sometimes do with Christian studies, and we're studying the Word of God, and God's saying, don't do this, don't do that, and we're thinking like, God, why don't you like to indulge me sometimes? Anyone ever felt that way before? I definitely have. There have been times when I'm like, God, I really, really want that. Why do you withhold from me? And it's when I look at this verse that I start to realize that sometimes what we're doing in the indulging, in the things that we are pursuing, and the things that we're going after and having, all of this, it might be making us feel good in the moment, but is actually voiding us of the life that God has for us. The whole reason why Paul is telling us to look carefully how we walk is because we could actually be walking in the fullness of what God has for us, or we could be voiding ourselves of everything that God has for us. This is actually a possibility. God didn't save you and then make you a robot to obey all of His commands. He saved you and said, now I want you to choose life. That's why so many people came to Jesus. He healed them. And then what did He say to them? Go and sin no more. You still get this choice on how you are living your life. And notice that Jesus didn't say, go and sin no more. If not, this disease is going to come back on you. Jesus wasn't vengeful, but he was saying, you've tasted life. 
Now go make sure that there's nothing that steals you of that life, that robs you of that life. The enemy is here to steal, kill, and destroy. He is active and working, and the days are evil because of what he is doing. So we have to look carefully at what we're doing, because what we're doing could be debauchery. It could be asatia. It could be voiding us of the life that God has for us. Why discernment is a cornerstone part of our Christian life is because without discernment, we would not be able to see what is debaucherous versus what is full of life. But God has given all of us the ability to understand primarily from His Word and primarily from the congregation of God so that we can learn and say, this is actually not helpful. This is actually not healthy. You know, when we were on our trip in Brisbane a little while ago, there was one day that somehow we were actually at this wildlife park and we were having a great day. And then Sam suddenly um, possibly got something in his eye. He got something in his eye. And obviously, as a three and a half year old, something in his eye is really uncomfortable and he started scratching. And he started scratching and he did not stop scratching. But every time he scratched that itch in his eye, it caused pain and he was crying. And the more he cried, the more he wanted to scratch that flippin' eye. And the more he scratched his eye, the more he cried. The more he cried, the more distraught he got, the more he was trying to scratch that eye. And we were deciding to drive up a flippin' mountain at that time. With a kid that was crying, I was like, stop scratching your eye. I think sometimes that is like what we can be with God. It's like, stop scratching that thing. It's making it worse. But it feels so much better when I scratch it. And then it feels worse. And so I need to scratch it. And God's like, no, stop it. You're causing damage to yourself. Honestly, at one point, Beck and I were actually really scared that he was going to really scratch his eye to the point where we were going, I don't know what was going to happen. It's a good thing that the next day that he was all right. But that was a picture that came to me about this. What is, what is your wine? What is the thing that you're indulging in? What is the thing that is causing you to go into excess that actually is taking life away from you? We've all got areas that we need to work on. I've got areas I still need to work on, and I probably will to the end of my life. But we've got stuff that are actually robbing us of life. And this is the problem for, uh, that I've been noticing, that people aren't using discernment to understand what is debaucherous and what is void of life. We need to actually go, hang on. See, one of the things that we've been talking about is the patterns of this world over the series, over, over the last couple of series. When we get so caught up in a way of living, we fail to see how dangerous it is. When I was living my life as a quiet, angry child, I had no idea how dangerous that would be. I had to stop. I had to look carefully and go, is there anything wrong with being quiet, by the way? No. Is there anything wrong with being a bit moody? A lot of people are like, no, this is your personality. Those things would have robbed me of the riches that God has given to me. My personality is no excuse to be the same. Because if you are always the same, you will always get the same results. 
So if you think that your life right now is the complete bee's knees, be the same. But I challenge you that God has got more life for you. God has got more riches available for you. And so if you stop being the same, maybe you have a chance. Like all of us, we have to stop being a certain way in order to be a different way. But Paul here says something really interesting because he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is the contrast. Where's the absence of life? It's in indulging ourselves in things that void us, that, that relieve us, if you will, of life. So how do we get filled with life? Be filled with the Spirit. The, the correct translation, if you will, the, the, the tense that is written in here is, is not a one-off being filled with the Spirit, but it's actually better translated, but be being filled with the Spirit. Continually be filled with the Spirit. There's this continual filling. It's not about one time you went to church, someone laid their hands on you, you felt something great, and that's all you ever need. But rather, Paul is saying, don't be void of life, keep being filled with life. The author of life. The Holy Spirit is God. It says in Genesis 1 that the earth was void and empty, but what was happening? The Holy Spirit was hovering, ready to breathe life, ready to create, and that's the Holy Spirit that is given to us. Isn't it amazing that God is saying the sinful things void you of life, but when you come into salvation, I'm going to fill you with the author of life. That is what is available for us. So church, next week we've got Pentecost Sunday. We're going to be praying and waiting for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because the pouring of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit is an experience. It's something that you need to, to, to be hungering and pushing for. You're not just going to be going randomly through your day. It's like I'm just driving on the way to Konana. I don't know why I would do that. But I'm driving on the way to Konana and suddenly uh, on the freeway, boom, filled with the Spirit. No, the filling of the Spirit is a deliberate uh, um, uh, experience that, that we hunger for. The early church waited for 10 days in the upper room in Jerusalem to be filled. We read about other fillings when people gathered, they prayed, they waited before the Holy Spirit fell. Come on, next week, let's wait. Let's prepare ourselves and let's ask for God. I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. But how do we be filled with the Spirit? In particular, in Ephesians 5, I want to read this because this is so interesting. It says, but be filled with the Spirit, comma, so how? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord of your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, comma, submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ. All one sentence. That's all one sentence. And it flows from the Holy Spirit stuff. Be filled with the Spirit and then do all these things. I put forward to you, church, that we get filled with the Spirit, not by individual pursuit, but what we do together as a church. You can miss a Sunday and God will still love you, 100%. You can miss church for a whole month and God will love you, 100%. But are you voiding yourself of life because you've not been in the place where the practices of the community of God is actually designed to fill you with the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yes. A car without fuel is still a car. Yes. But it's a, it's, it's a car that ain't going nowhere. A Christian without a church... Yes. 
It's still Christian, but you might be empty. And notice that it says, nothing about this passage is necessarily about receiving, but it's about participating. It's about giving. I'm in the body, and I sing to one another. Now, I was in the army for two years. I mentioned this. And in my platoon of like 30 guys, probably about five of us could sing. But sometimes when we were on forced marches, they would make us sing. And I was like, you really don't want that. These dudes can't sing. It's going to sound terrible. Sometimes we would do this, and it was at night. And I was like, really, guys? I was like, we're going to wake up the whole neighborhood with our terrible singing. But something strange happens when all 30 of us start singing the same song in different keys, by the way. But somehow, it actually sounds like Mulan. You know the movie, the Disney movie? It was like, it actually sounded all right. And it blows my mind that sometimes fallen, broken people can come together in the church of God and you're like, how are you going to fill me up? But there is something happens when we actually sing to God and combine our voices that actually bring something beautiful. My heart is pounding because I think God is actually really wanting you to hear this. You planted in a church, engage regularly in the life of that church, singing songs, having that kind of service, but it ends up with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's doing relationship. It's actually getting to know. Who do you know in this church that you can encourage today? Who do you know in this church that you can, you can serve today? That kind of action is part of being filled with the Spirit. Why? Because God loves His church. God loves His bride. And when you serve His bride, I think He kind of likes you too. If you serve Beck, you are serving me because you are serving my bride. If you hate Beck, I'm not going to talk to you. If you disrespect Beck, don't expect me to pray a blessing over you. I will bless you out of the house. There's this note that, you get what I mean? Why are we okay? We're bagging out the bride of Christ when God has actually made the bride of Christ a conduit for imperfect people to come together, sing songs of praise, and be filled with His Spirit. It doesn't make sense, does it? But it's a grace that God gives to Being a part of a fallen, broken church like this one is a grace that God has given to us to encounter Him. It's a grace. And you've fallen out of love with the church, you might have fallen out of love with God. And I don't say this to push anyone away, but I think we just need to come back to the Word. My heart is that you look carefully how you walk. And Paul says that, and then he talks about, really, the gathering of one another, the gathering of people. Our society is becoming more and more lonely. It's a stat. People are so lonely. I was chatting with mom and dad yesterday, and they were saying that Salvo's op shops, a whole bunch of people go there regularly, not to shop, but to have a friendly person say hi to them. 
We've got it made, church. But sometimes we don't realize that there's life here because the patterns of the world tell us that we need to indulge in something else. And I think God is wanting us to realize this is where life is. We are called on mission into the world, and then we're called together to refuel. And then after that refueling, you go out. We're not asking for fat Christians to just keep being filled up. You get filled up, you go on mission, you come back, you go out, and there's this, you keep missing too many of these, you're going to be ineffective out there. And that's the pattern of what the Bible tells us. So this morning, we're going to have communion together. If I can get Steve just on keys, we can get the host team. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.